This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello and welcome to the Christmas edition of Speaker for the Living. My name is Seth Dare and I'm here with JJ Genflone. Hey! How y'all doing? Good, good, great. Although uh, it looks like less people listen to a trafficking podcast during the Christmas season. I can't imagine why. <laughs> That's probably a good thing. Spend time with families, have fun with trees and presents and pie and, and toys. Well, that's because we're going to talk about toys. Although the first thought I had was the Island of Misfit Toys. Mmm. Where all the broken toys go? Right. Because they're rejected and nobody loves them until Rudolph saves them. It's a Rudolph reference, in case you don't know. People? For people who are too... too God, that might be... There might be too many people too young to remember it. Could be. It's really old. All of I those guess Rudolphs. it is. I guess it, yeah. Ugh. That's sad. If y'all don't know the old Rudolph cartoons, you should really watch them as a general rule. Especially for something like fun and, you know, enjoyable after today's podcast. <laughs> that should just be the disclaimer on all of our work, Seth. Like, if you're looking for fun, this may not be for you. But toys, toys are generally fun, even when we're talking about it in a slightly not fun way. But uh, this relates to a video we saw a few years ago, right? Yeah, so one of the first um, sort of... Uh, we've talked a lot about, about documentaries or film depictions of human trafficking that don't do a good job, and one of the first ones I saw that I actually thought did a phenomenal job um, was called Santa's Workshop. And it was a online documentary... Well, sorry, a documentary is now posted online actually for free for people to watch. So we're going to include the link to that there. It's a little bit older now. It was produced in 2004, but it deals with uh, Chinese toy factories and the exploitation and human trafficking that happens there, particularly around the production of toys for the holiday Christmas season in the Western world. So not, I know we've done a lot of sort of pop culture ones. This will not be a, our elves trafficked. (laughs) podcast this is a are the people who produce sort of the consumables that around sort of the winter or holiday season whether you're celebrating christmas or hanukkah or kwanzaa or or what have you i feel like kind of around the december months is when for the most part people's sort of purchasing goes up right it's a big season for retailers and so this is a big moment where if buying goes up then production is going to go up as well. And so what does that mean for the people who actually produce these items on the factory floor? And how can you buy items that are not harming an individual and their formation? And how how is it that these factories exist? Is this just like people sitting there? Is it an evil elf cackling as they make money? Or is this just sort of the market demanding incredibly cheap labor um, and giving owners very little recourse. So all that and more we will talk about today, but I really do recommend that maybe you stop the podcast right now. The documentary is short. It's roughly 30 minutes. Go watch Santa's Workshop and enjoy as much as it's possible to enjoy seeing people literally fainting while making toys and then return to the podcast as we discuss it. And now 
We'll have 30 minutes of silence where you can do that. <laughs> kidding, kidding. I'm tempted. I am tempted. Uh, but essentially what, what you'll see in the documentary is a breakdown of how uh, more than 75% of toys, uh, particularly toys consumed by Western countries, are made in China. So even if you're buying things, in particular what the Santa's Workshop documentary follows is uh, Swedish companies, which are generally known uh, to be very good uh, anti-human rights abuse, you know, Lego, so like producing sort of gender neutral, sort of, you know, liberal companies, quote unquote, how nevertheless, despite this reputation, they too use what ends up being defined by the documentary is essentially slave labor in the production of children's toys. And how is it that that happens? Maybe we should start with what does the supply chain look like? Okay. So do you, for in general, for toys in general? Sure. Okay. So here's, here's the first thing you have to remember is that just because a toy comes out of an American-based company like Mattel or Disney doesn't mean it was produced in the U.S. In fact, there's a there's a really cool organization called the China Labor Watch, the CLW, and they put out reports every couple of years that actually trace uh, popular brands, U.S. brands, but specifically popular toy brands and their supply chain within China. So let's say this happens. So Mattel, just as an example, I'm picking them at random. I don't have a, a, a supply chain in front of me for Mattel. But let's say it's it's Mattel, or for this case, it's Jatel. So Jatel Company produces Derby. And they need oh, 100,000 veterinarian Derbys for the Christmas season. It's a very popular selling toy. What they'll do is they'll divide their toy order among anywhere from a dozen to a hundred factories so that each factory is producing no more than, say, 20% of the total volume of toys. So you can have hundreds of factories all producing derbies. If you've ever bought like a, like a hot toy for a kid and then read that some of them or like a batch of them had a major defect. This is probably why they came from one particular factory that did it wrong. Whereas other factories did it right. Uh, and we kind of talked about this in the fast fashion podcast we did, but it's why sometimes you buy a shirt from a place like forever 21 and it immediately falls apart. And sometimes you buy a shirt from a place like that and it lasts for forever. It all sort of depends on where it was sourced. So the reason why companies will split these orders up is for a number of different reasons. On one hand, normally uh, it's because it does provide them with some sort of tax break or it's just financially more um, expedient for them to split it up, say, even between different factories in different countries. The other reason is this way they're not reliant on one particular factory to get the volume of toys that they need. So the more split up or the more farmed out their production is, the more opportunity they have to get toys quickly. It's not just, you know, one factory burned out, all our stock was lost. We can actually then encourage competition between these factories. And that leads us to the third point, which is price. 
when you have so many different factories and so many different places competing with one another to get these toy orders, it drives the price of production down. So then the toy company benefits because then it's not as expensive for them to produce it. And so whatever they sell it for, their, their uh, profit margin goes up. Well, what does that mean, though, for the factories themselves in country, say ones in China and Indonesia? Well, what that means is that the companies that are producing these toys in country then will attempt in order to keep making a profit to hire cheaper and cheaper labor. And as we've discussed in many of our podcasts on labor trafficking, eventually when you can no longer or you feel that you can no longer make a profit just by paying a living wage, you move to exploitation. And when you can't pay for even exploited workers, you move into trafficked workers. And because then these U.S.-based companies or these Western-based companies have actually farmed out, though, to anywhere from a dozen, again, to hundreds of factories, it's easy for them when it does come out, oh, you know, workers in factory Z and, and China have complained of terrible work conditions, they can say, well, that's just one of our factories. They produce 5% of what we sell. They're not like our actual producers. They're just a contractor. And Seth, maybe you could talk about maybe what happens even within these companies with subcontracting. Well, it can really depend on who gets the contract. So sometimes a company will just farm out parts to other companies with which you don't necessarily have as much transparency depending on how well the parent company in the West in this case tries to vet their supply chain. And so even if the parent company is applying pressure to their initial suppliers to follow certain guidelines, that doesn't mean that's going to go all the way down to other suppliers. And and we're, when we're talking about the supply chain here, we're talking about the first tier of the supply chain, mm-hmm. which is mostly the manufacturing and assembly of the product, usually the final product. Design in many industries takes place in the West, and then it goes to suppliers, which are often in places like Asia, China. But then there's also other suppliers that they have to go to aside from subcontracting potentially the manufacturing of it is then they have to get chips from japan korea like the the raw materials which aren't necessarily always raw so if you're going to talk about electronics then those electronics that they might get from japan then japan might get from various places including the drc for different minerals to make the chips in the first place. So tracing the entire supply chain of a toy is really complicated, especially if it's like a talking doll or something where where there's various types of materials involved, including electronics. And so all that said, we're still primarily focusing today on the first tier with the people who are putting together and assembling the toys. Now one complaint that uh, JJ and I have heard with a number of suppliers, and this is evident on the Santa's workshop video, is the supplier complaining about expectations going up and being squeezed, but not getting enough money to truly cover the cost of production so that then they have to make these types of decisions. 
And in the case of that video, I believe that was something they were confronted with in Sweden, wasn't it? Yeah, very much so. So again, it's this idea that as a business owner, you're expected to make your shareholders happy, you're supposed to make your clients happy, you're supposed to make the buyers of your product happy, but how how do you do that while simultaneously driving prices down and not, you know, uh, repeatedly dry, like driving down the cost of production? How, how do you do that? And it's not necessarily simple. Like, to, no. to be a little bit fair, it, it's not always simple. And not every company that is subcontracting to China is a big company. I mean, it's one thing to apply pressure on Apple, who's making an insane amount of profit. It's another if they're a Swedish company that is selling toys and making substantially less. Where then when you're saying, well, you need to do this, and they have to decide, well, do we can we survive? And those get to basic economic questions. Like if you can't cover the true cost of production, should you even be in business? Well, and that's, and that's the debate, right? Do you, do you commit a problem and then try to help, like to, to try to help give back to your community in other ways or no? And when I look at it, if I, if I look at Adam Smith and the wealth of nations and his type of argument, I would say if you're not covering the cost of production, you probably shouldn't be in business because you're really not following what I would see as a valid capitalist framework. Now, whether what capitalism actually is and how much exploitation is allowed, that's a whole other debate. I say that because, because I, you know, I know there's various people here listening. There are things that somebody from a communist or Marxist point of view would say are exploitive where other people would say, well, that's just the price differential and that's economies of scale and that's the way capitalism works when you when you have investment in all this production capacity and then you have scale. Hopefully some of that made sense to all of you. But that there are differentials that is the source of profit and that when you're doing manufacturing, you're able to make money by scale and by repeating processes. And it's one thing if you're taking care of your labors and treating them well, and you're not polluting. And if those things are happening, then those are externalities, to use economic speak, that should be part of the cost of production, I would argue. And trafficking is one of those externalities where people are being highly exploited. And in listening to the interviews, you, you have these people who, they, they're almost like, Deer in the headlights, Swedish version. What was it? Kind of almost like what? Like what do you expect us to do? Yeah, that was kind of the well. What? What are the options then that we have? Like what? What do you expect people to to do or to respond with? And the answer is well, eh. Like, and my response with that is, I think I think that if you're taking the responsibility to produce a product and sell it, you need to do the absolute best you can to ensure that the people producing that product are not harmed in the making of it. So whether that's because in some of these cases, we're going to be talking about what you see is, and this is reflected in the Santa's workshop video. It's not just that people are underpaid or not paid at all. In, in some cases, what happens is, so like if a worker at a factory say checks their phone or excuses themselves to the restroom, they can lose their right to pay for that day. 
to day pay. Or it becomes sort of a, a wage slavery thing where they're forced to live on the the campus. A lot of these factories, particularly the Chinese-based factories, have sort of campuses attached to them. And so they're forced to live in the campus, in the dorms, eat the food that's provided there. And as a result of that, they end up owing money to the factory for which they work because they're overcharged for almost everything. So it's not just that, though, in terms of wages. It's it's in terms of hazardous working conditions as well. So you're working with lead-based paints. You're working in extremely hot conditions. You're working with, like, pouring molten metal. You're working with, like, machinery that sparks or has really sharp moving parts that you haven't been trained accurately to use. Or you're working ridiculous hours. There are reports of people who are working seven days a week, 18, 19 hour days with no breaks, uh, with very little food um, and exceptionally hot, difficult conditions. And so I think if you're if you're still making a profit on that, even though you feel you're having you have a responsibility to sort of shareholders or people buying it to keep the price low, I think you do kind of have to look ultimately people who are in the first tier of the business and everyone who's in the, the lower tiers and say, okay, well, what do we have to do to protect our workers? There's also sort of two, what I do, I do want to articulate is that there's side exploitation that happens too, which think about it when you have people living on a campus like this, particularly again in the, in the China case, there are sort of little side things that develop then. So you have, you have the sex trade occurring because people, people aren't going home. People aren't forming relationships. People get lonely. Sex happens. So you have the potential for sex trafficking occurring or for people to be exploited sexually via like bosses and workers. They don't have an, an option for recourse. Then you also have, and particularly again in the China case, you have factory workers who are actually taking drugs like ketamine in order to to stay awake, to, to to work longer. And so then you have not only just ketamine production going up, but then the trafficking of drugs. And as we've talked about in a number of podcasts, it, the drug trade is is so tied to human trafficking as well. Not just because it's also an illicit market, but because it's an illicit market that tends to prey on people. And so, JJ, what are some specific examples that people experienced in the factories? Okay, so specific examples of, of exploitation. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, <laughs> take your pick. And in, in particular, again, all of these examples I will have to say are coming from China. We're seeing now increasingly with each passing year more and more manufacturing is leaving China and going into other East Asian countries like Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, but because these have a significantly smaller geographical area and population size, it's not to the same number, but just just FYI so that everybody knows this isn't a solely China issue. However, this is something that was referenced directly in the recent trafficking in persons report, the tip report that Seth and I talked about, uh, specifically citing, to quote directly, that the U.S. Labor Department's expanded list of goods made with forced or child labor in China included in the sectors of artificial flowers, bricks, Christmas decorations, coal, cotton, electronics, footwear, garments, nails, textiles, and toys. So just just FYI, this has primarily been thought as a, as a Chinese issue. Mm-hmm. Um, Moving so out what? of China because the cost of labor is going up. Exactly, exactly. Primarily. And what's, in, what's interesting, too, in the Chinese case is that even exploited laborers are starting to form kind of like almost like Chinese versions of like proto-unions 
and standing up and saying, well, there's so many of us, we want more money. And so that's why then it's being kicked down the line. So what I'm going to cite particularly is coming from a factory in Shenzhen. Shenzhen, for those of you who are familiar with the Chinese geography, is in southern China. It's near the border to Hong Kong. It's where a lot of these factories are located. So in so coming out of Shenzhen, um, we have someone working in Mattel. So actually like producing Barbies. And so this one particular woman interviewed, and I will link you the whole article. Uh, she works 11-hour days, six days a week, shares a dormitory with nine other women. And these dormitories, I, I will link you to another documentary that I think is, is quite beautiful about not toys directly, but actually people working in a blue jean, or I guess like denim jean factory. It's by PBS. It's phenomenal. But you actually get to see quite firmly the living conditions of migrants within these dormitories. These are not nice dormitories. These are these are often exceptionally cold, very industrial type buildings with maybe just like a, a three deep bunk bed style stack. So there's very little privacy. These dorms are also single sex. So if you're a married couple, you don't get to interact. Um, you have a day off one day a week. Uh, and that's the only day a week that this particular woman gets to see her husband. Your children cannot live there with you, so you're completely alone. Although I will say anecdotally, I knew lots of female factory workers whose children were with them and were just forced to remain in the dormitory. We're talking toddlers here um, or on the factory floor itself all day, every day while their parents were at work. There is normally, or at least in this case, she cites that there's just one communal bathroom. Again, I've seen factories where there is no communal bathroom. And if you want hot water you do have to get it from another floor. It's not like you have a hot water tap. And so you certainly don't have like a washing machine or a communal kitchen. You, it, it's, it's pretty much a barracks. Um, and this is, a, this is a worker who makes uh, Barbie. She makes Barbies. And so she makes these Barbies 11 hours a day, makes less than the equivalent of a dollar a day. So even working all of the overtime that's possible for her to make, with all of the sort of extra allowances and deductions. So you can get allowances, say that you work overtime, but you also skip lunch. Then you can get an allowance. Say you're permitted a 15 minute bathroom break every six hours and you don't take it. You can get that as an allowance. Then you can also get, you have deductions. So your deductions are things like paying for your dormitory, even though that's a mandatory place for you to stay paying for your food because there is no communal kitchen, paying because you only have one day a week so you can't really travel far off site and a lot of these factories are away from the city center, you know, paying at the company store for like food to keep in your like, you know, non-perishables. So on average, these people are making very, very little money and in fact, far less than the average wage of someone else working in a Chinese city, especially someone working on that hour. Now, in terms of dangerous conditions, people report having to work with like banana oil, which will soften and dissolve plastics. It's an acetone. So people interacting directly with chemicals that you can't interact with, that you're not supposed to interact with, that workers are expected sometimes to work more than 100 hours a month of overtime. And if they don't work that hour, they can be fired. Now, this is against Chinese labor laws that say you can only have 36 overtime hours a month, but nevertheless, people will still work up to 100 hours of overtime. People will work with chemicals. They will work in extremely hot conditions. So say that you're working in like plastics molding, right? 
you're supposed to only have to work on, say, like a really hot machine like that where there's a lot of steam for with one with appropriate ventilation and air conditioning. But you're only supposed to work in that environment for a few hours at a time with plenty of breaks to sit and rehydrate because it can be really dangerous for your body. Anyone who's ever been in like a super, super hot room knows this. Right. But that's not offered to people. So instead, people are working super long, long hours in a really hot room that's not ventilated with chemicals that they're ingesting. They're also expected, say, maybe to not wear safety masks or other safety equipment like gloves because that's expensive. And so these are people who are making Disney dolls for you or they're making Batman dolls. They're working for Mattel. They're working for Fisher Price. You know, you're, they're working for these super well-known companies that people trust. Uh, in terms of toy retailers, right? Like if you ask, like I think the average parent, like is Fisher Price a decent company? They're going to say yes. They're wholesome. They make cute little toys. Is is Disney good for kids? You know, is Mattel trustworthy? But <laughs> what exists anyway are just people being exploited again and again and again. And what I really advise everyone to, what I what I will make sure is linked below, is that the China Labor Watch from 2014 report that they put out that is just probably, it is, it's long. I will tell you that it's 67 pages, but it is the most most in-depth report I've ever seen that's a breakdown of sort of the mass sort of dangers to workers. And in particular, there are three big things I want to cite. One, the detaining of personal IDs. So, Cases where factory owners or factory sort of personnel have taken workers' IDs or paperwork and then held them, which then keeps people from working or, or being able to leave. Unpaid wages, so where people are not paid. And this is, there's a, there's, it's not uncommon in China for the way factories to function is your first month you work and you're not paid for that month. It just kind of goes into the till. And so the second month, you're paid your first month's wages. So there's a month to lay, which clearly benefits the factory then because a worker, even if they're unhappy, they have to stay then with that factory in order to get the payment for the work that they've done. And then finally, abusive management. So management in these factories who are both verbally and physically and sometimes sexually abusive to workers, all of which we know are methods of control, Right. Mix in this with things like not having anyone to complain to, the fact that all these factories are basically a fire trap. <laughs> there's, there's, there's very little safety effort. There's no protective equipment. You have a system where factory workers are very, very open to exploitation and very much at risk. I really do like this report because it breaks it down by factory actually, that they investigated. Granted, since this is from 2014, there can be sort of changes that have happened in terms of factory names or representation. But what I would suggest is that if you're, you're someone who's buying a lot of toys or is very much interested in this, look to see where a toy is produced. If you look, say, on the back of a toy box, it will say, like, you know, made in the People's Republic of China, but it, sometimes it'll have a company, right, like Shenzhen Unlimited. Google that company, look at its subsidiaries, and then from there, look at these reports and hunt down to see if there have been grievances filed against them. This report also includes pictures 
too, of, of things within the factory where you can see things like factory workers using sort of their, their bare hands to apply chemicals that in the U.S. you would be expected to have um, sort of like full-on protective covering. You also just see sort of like just the, the dirt and the grime that people are expected to live in or work in or the very just unsanitary conditions. It also breaks down wages. So I was shocked to find that a lot of toys that are sold by Disney and Disneyland themselves come from a one, come from this particular, or at least in 2014 came from this particular company called Dong Guan Lung Chong Toys, and that workers were maybe getting maybe $130 a month. And that the just how oppressive their contract was, which includes things that like working hours can be expanded without the like for temporary workers, like their working hours can be extended without their consent for temporary workers. And that also workers often are told to sign the contract um, and give their fingerprint for it without having time to actually read the contract if they are able to read because sometimes a lot of what these factories are preying on are poor migrants from disenfranchised areas or particular ethnic minorities they're also preying on uneducated women so they're hoping that people are unable to or are not reading the contracts yeah and i think i think the biggest thing too and this is reflected also again Santa's Workshop documentary is that so let's say that you are a business owner a foreign business owner and you come in to to view the in-country factory well there's no guarantee at any particular point that what you're seeing is actually their the day-to-day reality of life in the um in the factory because there are reports of factories that will put on presentations specifically for sort of foreign investors where Workers are told to wear safety equipment for the first time. Workers are told to go take and take a break. Workers are told to go relax, etc. When that's not their actual day-to-day life. And that's one of the challenges with both audits and assessments. Like for audits, there's a, a very specific in-company evaluation. Assessments can go beyond that, looking out- outside of the factories. But companies generally have noticed when these things are going to happen. And do they ever try to manipulate the process? Well, yes. All right. So uh, with all of that uh, discouraging news, uh, where should consumers buy or what resources can we point them to? Okay. So this is this is actually great. So there are a lot of actually like supply train, like clear supply chain items for human trafficking. So let's say that you want a clear human trafficking free item right you can hunt them down via a sort of number of entities so what i would recommend for everybody is to just go online and look for children's toys because i'm presuming that these toys you're buying for yourself you know that if you still want a batman then it's probably marketed as a children's toy so and then you're going to be looking for human trafficking free plus supply chain so you want to be able to hunt down the actual supply chain of an item. So companies with clear supply chains. These are largely going to be smaller companies, more indie companies that may make you feel a little hipster, (laughs) but nevertheless are quite useful. I would avoid major companies sort of like Walmart or Nestle. 
Apple or Disney because those have been known to still use those. Ones that I particularly like as an ethical shopper, uh, Patagonia for clothing is considered quite good. They have very clear supply chains. They're very easy to hunt down where things are going. Likewise, L.L. Bean, that's great. Um, if we're doing sort of clothing and, and things of that nature, I do a lot of shopping on Etsy for things that have been created using the term dead stock. So that's, you're looking for, you know, maybe like stuffed animals and things that have been made with fabric that otherwise would have ended up in a landfill. And then there's a couple different ethical toy shops that I really do like that I have used for like baby shower gifts and things for friends. One is called Holes Toys, H-O-L-Z. They do not give me any money. But they it comes from Thailand where it's sustainably farmed. And actually, like, they have a very, very clear supply chain. And they make pretty much – it's a lot of wood-based toys. So it is a little, like, little house on the prairie-esque. But I, I do really – I do quite like them. I also like this other company. It's called Forest Dragon. They are made all in Germany and Poland with material all from Germany and Poland. And again – beautiful clear supply chain for more like famous ones lego has actually come out in the last year or two with a really clear supply chain linked to its website which makes me really really happy there's also a website and just in general that if you want to look stuff up for that i would call um that it's called the ethical consumer and i like it because you can search things on it for a number of things so I actually I really like hunting things down based on what I look for is under people and politics but they also let you search for things like is it animal friendly environmentally friendly is it sustainable that kind of stuff so you can kind of rank what you think is important but I do really like this website because I have used it before particularly when I'm thinking about buying something online to search supply chain because they do list where things come from so Seth, give me give me a toy company. Hasbro. Hasbro. Okay, cool. I'm gonna search for Hasbro. So I literally come in for brand, and I am going to search for Hasbro and see what grade they got. And the and the higher the grade, the better. It's it's out of twenty. Okay, so Hasbro. Let's see what the great Hasbro has for us. Hasbro Toys Supply Chain. So it looks like they are ranked on a, on a lower tier, but not the worst. They have third-party manufacturing. They do push for more sustainability amongst its practices that it uses in terms of like environmental practices, but it's not very clear they don't have a rating for people. So for me, who's mostly concerned about sort of human trafficking related things, I'm unhappy, right? Because I'm like, I, I want to know if this is related to them. However, I am seeing that they are related to because their toys have been bought by Mattel. <laughs> so Mattel and Hasbro sell things together. So clicking over to Mattel, I want to see what their ranking is directly. Since, since we hated on them a little bit in all of my examples today. Let's see what Mattel's ranking is. Ooh, not good. <laughs> not good at all, actually. So what we're seeing is that they're really concerned sort of now with environmental issues, perhaps because 
that seemed to be reflected in what people were very interested with and paying, but that they have an exceptionally low ranking when it comes to people and the management thereof. So they're not ranked as ethical. So I would tell anyone who would say, should I buy from Hasbro? Based on this, I would say, no, <laughs> do not. But it does give me the option then to click on highly rated ones. So I can see that maybe instead of Mattel, a company that sells things similar to Mattel, which only has a score of eight out of 20, is a company that's a little smaller. It's called Orchard Toys. Orchard Toys has a 14.5 rating, sells similar items. So maybe to go up, what's available? But I, I do really like this one, at least because the, the scorecard is very clearly labeled about each one has anywhere from three to five different breakdowns. And they'll show you based on like the size of a dot, right? So looking to see, you know, how, how does the breakdown happen in terms of scoring is that Mattel gets certain points that are a little bit higher for being environmentally savvy, but it gets very low points in regards to its people and then its um, politics. So I, I always recommend sort of websites and things like that, but just basically really devote yourself to, to a serious evening of hunting down toys. And also just buy less. You know, the, the great thing about minimalism, minimalism is if you're buying less, one, you have more money to spend because I will say, again, there's a place of privilege with this. Things are things that are human trafficking free completely and have clear spine chains tend to be a bit more expensive. So that's rough. But if you're buying less, generally that means you can buy a higher priced item. Additionally, if you're just buying less, period, the chances of you bringing things into your home that are, are possibly harmful is, is a little lower. Or buy used or make them, which, oh. which even if they have originally been produced uh, in an unclear supply chain, at least you're limiting the impact. Oh, yeah. And this is all predicated on my idea that you're buying new for all these companies. I, I always, 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 maybe just because it's the grad student in me, my first thing is always go for used. Always. If, if you're getting something used, even if you're buying from like a secondhand retailer like an eBay or a thrift shop, you are, you are not introducing more money in, into sort of this market. No, that's not the sort of thing that's going to help GDP, but uh, GDP is not the same as prosperity or good human conditions. Mm -hmm. That's one reason there are alternate indicators like the Human Development Index and others where we're trying to say, what, what are the factors that make for human flourishing? And it's not just economics, it's not just growth. And this is one of the challenges when we're talking about China is that China has grown really fast because of cheap labor and now labor isn't as cheap. And so there's just limits to growth. And it's why we should look at other things beyond growth and think about reusing, think about creating, think about things that go beyond consumption, which is a really interesting Christmas message. But I also know there are a number of people out there, maybe even some of you listening, who are trying to think about alternate approaches to the consumerism of Christmas. Because Christmas is about other things as well. If you're a person of faith, like a Christian, like a JJ and I's background, you know, very much the, yeah. cr the Christ part of Christmas being important. Mm -hmm. Although 
also perfectly happy to say happy holidays, but um, it's also a really good time for people and to uh, slow down and spend time with family and friends and get away from productivity and to have some sort of end of year Sabbath. And one of the ways to do this too, and this is something that I know my family did with me as a kid a lot, is if, if in lieu of gifts, there's always you can do activities together as a family. You can always do volunteering as a family, as, especially with young kids. I think do do the losses more. Do consumables. Who doesn't like a nice, ethically sourced apple? And like, I'm not being facetious. I actually like that was really a fun part of getting like a stocking as a kid is like, there's a mango in here, you know, just fun stuff. Break it down. Doesn't all have to be a sea of iPads and Kylie Jenner makeup brushes. Oh, with that, we'll be publishing this around Christmas, so have a Merry Christmas, Happy Holiday, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, guys. Keep the faith. Bye. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.